Hello there, my name's Pete Liston and welcome to another episode of the Military Mindset for Business podcast, where I'm really excited to tell this story because it's uh, a gentleman that I know relatively well, having uh, both served with him and been friends with him for many years. Um, but he doesn't know this yet, but his name is actually a bit of an acronym or a bit of a, a noun in our business because we're like, if only we could have a Tom Larder in our business. So, uh-huh. whenever, so whenever we talk to, whenever we're thinking about our strategic planning, we're like, man, can we get a Tom Larder in our business one day? So uh, let's cut straight to the chase. Tom, how are you, mate? Mate, I'm great. Um, and that's that's a good laugh and a good start. Um, it's, <laughs> it's too complimentary. I appreciate it. Thanks. And it's great to be here, mate. I love the work that you do, you and Matt. And it's been great seeing other veterans get into business over the years. So well done. No, a pleasure, man. Well, a bit of context about why we use your name in vain like that is I guess because, you know, we've watched from, not from afar, relatively closely, but um, just throwing our net, you know, mutual connections and, you know, time together, we've just watched your journey into this amazing business, which is with you, with me, heading basically through the ranks um, until now, you know, you're leading this, uh, this really fascinating business. But before we get into with you, with me, I always like to go back and start is, where did you come from? And how did you end up in the military? So let's go right back. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, I grew up in Brisbane. Um, I I left school quite young because I'm a late I'm a late birthday in November. So in Queensland, you finish early. So I just turned seventeen, graduated. I'd managed to secure a place at the Defence Academy, um, and so I went straight to Canberra at, at seventeen and did my degree as many many young officers do, um, and wanted a career in the army and. And of course, went through RMC and found myself in the corps, in the infantry corps, very shortly after that. And how I got there is not that exciting. You know, I don't have a long lineage of military history. Uh, I think the military appealed to me because I, I like adventure. Um, I really like being involved with people and, and lots of activities. And the military kind of allows you to do that. And the military training system allows you to do that. I, I definitely didn't want to go to university. Um, although I did end up clearly through the academy doing a university degree, but it was really the military training that pulled me through my academics for sure. Yeah. It's funny, like when I came through Duntroon, I was a little bit older. So I went through Duntroon at 30 and there was all of these young thrusters like, you know, well, Mose was even younger than you. He might've been like 19 or 20 or something. Yeah. You lads would have been maybe like 21, 22, but there was this cohort of great young great young men who were like seemed destined to go to the infantry. Uh, and you, you know, you were one of those. What, what made you like really crave or what, what made you make that choice to go to infantry corps? Because it was seen as, you know, the most highly sought or the most, the most highly sought after trade that you could get into. I definitely think it's the kind of call the call to arms, right? The call to adventure. I was one of those people that joined the military because I wanted to serve. I, I wanted to, the chance to be able to go and protect the things that I believed in for Australia and other nations that we worked with. And it seemed natural that one of the combat corps is where I would would like to end up. And then as you go through RMC, you remember as well, you start to learn about the different corps and what they do. And when, when we kind of stumbled across mechanised infantry in particular, um, that really you know, that really ticked a bit of inspiration. And so um, the other part of it, I think, is the camaraderie. Now, that's not exclusive to the infantry, but I was particularly drawn to the idea of building a bond with a group of individuals and going and doing pretty extreme things with them 
Um, and that's that sense of adventure for me. And yes, other corps definitely do that as well. But there was something about the infantry that really drew us in. Well, it is special, the infantry. And like, well, every, as you said, every corps is special. But I was blessed as a logistics officer to be posted to the 3rd Battalion of the Royal Australian Regiment as my first posting. Uh, yeah. And for me, being a fly on the wall, oh, no, part of the brethren, but you know, still wearing that skippy badge, you know, is uh, is a special thing. But it, for me, it was the best job that I had in the army, being being able to participate in the life of the battalion, particularly with my peers, and and to deploy. Um, and we deployed pretty early to East Timor. I uh, probably, you know, as soon as we finished our courses, you know, we were over there. But I remember that you and a couple of the other lads, was it seven RAR or five RAR? Seven, yeah. Seven. You were like the you were literally the first cabs off the rank within a couple of months of graduating, finishing your course, and bang, straight into Afghanistan. What was it like to be so young, so fresh, and to be commanding soldiers in that kind of environment? Yeah, that's right. So we you know, you remember we graduated RMC in November of two thousand and seven. Um and then we went on to do our infantry officers course. And basically we were finished by about Anzac day, but we had the phone call during our officers course um, that, that Brad, Ash and I, who were the new lieutenants in the seventh battalion would be part of the contingent going on the first mentoring tour into Afghanistan. Um, and so by the time we got back to the battalion after Anzac day, we were straight into force preparation into the field. Um, and then I was the last to arrive in country out of the three of us. So I got there about October, September, October of 2008. And so, yeah, it is, that's a rapid, um, it wasn't necessarily unheard of because prior to that, lots of people had been pulled off RMC and ROBC to go to other deployments, but it was definitely the first time for Afghanistan where we'd been pulled out so fast for a tour like that. Um, the first thing I'd say is it, it was kind of exciting. It was exciting to get that opportunity, particularly as a group of, infantry officers who wanted to go and experience that and lead soldiers on operations to have that so early was very, very exciting. Um, it was stressful in the sense that we barely even met our platoons. You know, we'd, we'd done one series of force preparation. Uh, many of us had corporals who deployed as soldiers, but we were all quite new. And so you really had to bond quickly and then, and then just focus on training and getting into country and try and be specific on the task we were going to do. So just on that point, how did you find creating those pivotal relationships? So you may have had weeks, if not maybe a couple of months to get to know these lads, and then you're straight into theatre. Um, how did you go building those bonds? Was it challenging? Yeah, it's challenging. But I think the military has this funny way of sorting that out, right? Because all the corporals and the sergeants and the warrant officers know that you're the new officer and they're going to have to kind of sort themselves out a little bit while they test and feel you out to see if you're any good and, you know, you're going to be do good by them. So the system and the culture kind of helps you. And then for me, it was about just getting to know people, really like understanding the different strengths of the corporals and how you would use them in different ways to achieve different outcomes. I had great sergeants. I was lucky to have two in the sense that on our trip, I had a cavalry detachment that was mine for the entirety of the nine months. So I had a cab sergeant and an infantry sergeant, both with previous deployment experience. And so getting to know them and for them to understand how I was as a leader and how I wanted to operate was was key. And I, I guess in reflection, I feel like I did an okay job at that. 
Um, and and the team the team performed as best as I could hope. I think in the circumstances. So tell us for those that are, aren't uh, inclined with military, you know, acronym, acronyms and you know, structures. Tell us about your team, the size, who you had, this kind of assets at your disposal under your command. So for that um, particular tour, they they sort of upsized a standard infantry platoon, which is normally thirty people. Um, and we were in Bushmasters at the time, um, and they gave us a, a, a cavalry detachments, which was which was three Aslabs, um, and the team to run those, so nine a nine person crew um, that was with us the whole time. And then they would assign um, a combat engineer section, so another one or two vehicles, um, and maybe ten to twelve people in that. And typically, you'd have the same crew, but sometimes that would rotate. And then there was always a, a handful of add-ons. There was interpreters, there was artillery folk. Um, there might be um, medics all coming out on different rotations. So at any one given time, you, you know, I was probably leading a team that was anywhere from 45 to 60 people. Mm. And, and some of those operations, I can remember getting a mission set that was um, go and do this set of things. It's 30 days. You've got enough supplies to be out there for 30 days. You're in radio communication. Um, we'll see you when you get back. And as a 21-year-old, to take 60 people for 30 days in the middle of Afghanistan is pretty interesting. Well, you mentioned something before, uh, a little bit flippantly, that the first part of this job was mentoring. It was the first mentoring task force. What is what is tell us what does mentoring actually mean? So there were two there were two components to the deployment. Um, there was a force protection component which I was in, which was there to provide a broader security to the mentoring teams and I'll come to that and some of the other tasks that were going on including doing our own security operations and then there was a team specifically assigned to mentoring the Afghan National Army um, and they were typically corporals and above um, so the more senior folk in the organization and they were split up amongst the Afghan battalions divisions out there teaching them tradecraft going out on patrols with them um, to you know, to to find enemy, to protect the locals and generally upskill them in the things they needed to be a more competent force. And so we'd work hand in hand with that team to support their operations as much as do our own. So I think that's an interesting point there. Like when we say mentoring, it's like, hey, let's show you how to fight by going mm-hmm. and having a fight and let's fight with you in the fight to show you how to fight. That's yeah, um- that's exactly what it was. And I think a lot of those lessons came from, you know, training team Vietnam where, you can you can teach people things all day, but the credibility and respect goes by walking side by side with the force you're trying to mentor and being able to do the debriefs and share the experiences because learning comes through pain. Um, and that's where the mentoring was happening. And how long was your deployment for? Nine months. Nine, so nine months. So I guess the old saying, baptism by fire, graduate a college, get through your, you know, your regimental officers course straight into your first nine month deployment. Now you're back in the battalion, uh, you know, in your second year in the real army. Um, what's life back in the real army like after being exposed to that kind of experience so early on? Yeah, this was pretty fascinating actually, because because our tour, if you cast your mind back to 2008, there hadn't been a lot of um, combat seen within the regular army at that point. Um, and, and our tour was one of the early tours where um, both Brad, Ash and mine and other elements of the force were all exposed to different versions of, of combat, whether it was direct, you know, direct firefights and IEDs and a whole bunch of things. 
after that, as you know, we went on for another decade where different battalions had very di different experiences um, and some far more drastic than, than mine. But coming back to the army, as you say, as one of the first and being thrown into um, the rotations of the team that was preparing to go next and being able to be a voice of experience and real world experience from recent operations was pretty amazing. And, and I can remember going to um, Darwin, I think, or Townsville for one of the rotations that was prepping to go. Um, it might have even been the 3rd Battalion. I, I can't remember exactly. And um, and sitting in front of a bunch of soldiers just getting questions. What was it like? How did you handle this? You know, what did you do when they were shooting at you? Like all these questions you never get to ask in training, but you can just sit down and have a brew and people talk to you about it. And it was fascinating to have the answers and the lived experience to share because we didn't get that as much when we were going through training. And that was pretty cool. Well, I've, it's probably um, a good thing that I wasn't in the infantry because I used to sometimes find that in moments of uh, simulated combat, you know, when we're doing exercises or, or whatever, sometimes my brain would sometimes freeze during high pressure, you know, impactful moments. And, you know, it's almost like that white noise on TV in terms of how do you actually grab clarity in your mind to solve a problem? How, how were you dealing with this stuff when this came to you, is it something you get used to over time? Like the first contact is a bit, you know, a bit strange, but then you get used to it after you've had multiple, how does your brain work in those environments? Well, I wouldn't, I mean, I'll speak to my own experience and I wouldn't say that I'm, you know, heavily combat experienced after one tour, but some of the stuff we were taught in the early days of training really rang true. You, you do need to take a couple of big breaths and just pause for a second to take in what's going on. The last thing that you need to do is make immediate decisions and actions. And so um, it didn't matter whether it was an IED going off or, or someone was shooting at us. I tried as best I could to take 30 seconds to do nothing. Yeah. And sometimes I had little triggers that would help me do that as an example. And this will sound utterly ridiculous. Um, it would take about 20 seconds for my GPS to turn on and load up. And it wasn't always on to save the battery. So if something happened, the first thing I would typically do is turn it on because the first thing you do is send a location to where you are when an incident occurs. But that 25 seconds can feel like a lifetime and it was enough to take a few breaths, do nothing else except, except send a location and that's helped your brain process before you actually need to get into start consuming information and making decisions. That seemed to work for me. I love it. A simple tactical pause to appreciate what's going on, have a think about it, You know, really digest the situation, and then make a little, then make a decisive decision. So, you did probably uh, what tenish or years outside of the colleges, you know, in our in regular army. Yeah, that's about right. When did you start getting the inkling that you know army's great, but there could be something else out there? You know, I was uh, I was posted in Townsville. I was working at the combat training center, um, doing exercise planning, which was a fantastic job. Lots of time in the field. Um, I was studying my master's of business through UNSW part-time, like many officers do as you're progressing through the captain ranks. Um, and I was really enjoying business. And I'd always had this, I don't know why, this desire to want to start my own business. Um, I was just drawn to it. I enjoyed reading about it. I liked the stories. I, I kind of liked the founder thing. And, um, and, and so I embarked on this opportunity in Townsville to build a rock climbing gym. I'm a rock climber. I grew up rock climbing. There wasn't a gym in Townsville and I thought maybe I could build one. And then we did. 
And I met Makes someone sense. up there. It was a business partner and, and we built. So I found myself working full-time in the army with a great CEO who was super supportive of me doing all these things, studying the business masters and going in my evenings and physically building this business. And that was the point at which I was like, I don't know what I want to do, but I feel like I want to do something more than perhaps what the army is offering me. Loved the army, had great prospects in front of me. Um, and, it, and it took me two years from that point before I made a decision to leave. So I took another posting into Melbourne. I was working at the Defence Force Recruiting Centres in Melbourne. Um, and it wasn't until I spent that time thinking about, yeah, okay, this is the time to go that I started to think about what my options would be. It's funny, like planting that seed and it does take you know, a while for it to sprout and mature and, and everyone needs to transition in their own time and their own way. But what was the decisive moment was where is, sorry, is with you, with me in the picture at the moment? And are you sort of tracking what they're doing? No. So um, it was in the latter stages of my final year. I I stumbled across a post on LinkedIn from with you, with me's founder, Tom, um, and I reached out to him because I thought some of the stuff he was working on could help solve some of the recruitment challenges we were facing at the time. Um, i.e. there's people leaving the military, but maybe they could still serve in other ways. It, and this was quite unique thinking in, you know, in what's this, 2017, 2016. Mm. Um, and so we reached out and it turned out that Tom had also served in the 7th Battalion. Um, actually, he went through infantry when I was running um, training there, although I didn't train him specifically. And so we had this kind of shared connection through the battalion. A lot of my uh, soldiers were his corporals. Um, and so we kind of we kind of hit it off and started to talk about his business ideas. And I was fascinated about how he was approaching it. He's got a real founder vibe um, in terms of a traditional founder and how people would think about that if you've been exposed to that. Um, and that was kind of exciting. And so it made me realize that maybe I don't need to be a founder. Maybe I need to jump on board with a pretty big vision and see if I can add value to that and help. And that would that would help me satisfy this need to have social good and do something big in the world. And so six months later, as I left, um, uh, Tom uh, put me through my paces and, and I was hired as one of the first full-time employees into the business. Now, what was, tell us a little bit about with you, with me as it is now and what you're doing and, and what, how you're affecting the world. And let's go back to what it was like then. And let's follow that journey through of how the business has changed over those six or seven years. So tell us what With You With Me does. So what With You With Me is about now is solving a very big social problem that's a little bit under the radar. And we describe that as wanting to solve underemployment. And underemployment is about helping people realize what their potential could be and then obtain that potential in the workforce. So the world typically operates on an experience-based talent system where the value is placed on your last job or your education, and we benchmark that as your fit and, and likely success for a future role, which is why veterans face so many issues getting, getting jobs in the first place, and we'll come back to that. Um, we actually believed in a future where a skills-based model is better, where the value is placed on your ability to learn skills, so cognitive aptitude, and the recency of skill competency achieved. And that's very similar to the military. Because in the military, you're asked to learn things rapidly all the time and then deploy with those things confidently. And we figured the same thing would be true in the corporate world. So our business has been driving that message through a free program for underrepresented groups, which includes veterans, their families, and now expanded into other populations, neurodivergent talent, in some regions, Indigenous talent, pretty much anybody who doesn't fit the mold for the experience-based model. 
We run that free. We give them access to training and testing and help them access employment or at least think differently about their careers. And then, and then the commercial part of our business is working with big customers to help them think about their future problems under this model, a skills-based model. So back in the day, the standard way you get a job was, hey, here's a role. What's your resume? What have you done in the past, like in your rearview mirror? And is that what you've done in the past um, somehow equate to the need of the business right now? But you've really changed that way of thinking in terms of it's not just about your resume or piece of paper. And look, in reality, how legitimate is anyone's resume? Like it's only it's only as good as the, the language you want to put onto it. But this unpacking potential and the ability to train people in short times, very definitive, very definitively for very specific outcomes was really part of the with you, with me driver of success. Just unpack, where did that model come from? Yeah. Um, so in isolation, these things aren't uh, new ideas. Skills-based hiring has been around for, for years and years. Um, and some companies exemplify that. Um, aptitude testing has been around for decades. Um, upskilling and virtual online learning has been around for years and years. What someone hadn't really done to the effect that we'd seen it is kind of package that together and then take an employee or a user view of it. How do I help Pete actually understand what he could be capable of? And I do that by showing him some aptitude match to skills and then getting him into training to build confidence and get excited about it. And that's helped us take everyone from truck drivers and infantrymen and turn them into software developers and cyber analysts and project managers because it was just about opening up what they think they can do. Um, and so the idea for that really came from our experiences in the military because that's kind of how the military recruits people. Like they put you through some testing. They don't look at your resume. They figure out the things that you could be good at. You get to choose from those things. Then they keep training you over time to be continuously proficient in a lifelong learning approach. And so we sort of said, well, how do we make that make sense in the corporate world? And that's what we've done. And, and we continue to try and evolve. Seen, seen the uh, requirement for the demand in terms of what these skills are from the corporate or organizational level and basically said, well, let's plug that hole in the demand by bringing people through qualified, skilled, ready to go. Mate, tell us the what demand it was an like. interesting point really quickly because a lot of the demand is a job description and, and a lot of the job descriptions don't make sense. And a lot of customers, big corporates tell us that our job descriptions are confusing. So we rationalize those job descriptions into skills using skills frameworks. And then you start matching people against the critical skills. Just what do you need someone to do 80% of the time to solve your problem? And let's recruit for that. Let's not recruit for the shopping list of things that have been added to over the last five years for job descriptions. And this is, this is making me think now, like in my own business, one of the things we do is um, offshoring of team members. And, we, and I must get you know, 20 job descriptions a week from, from clients who are like, hey, can you fill this role for me? But you're actually just making me uh, really think about now about how I'm solving that problem because it is so hard when you get a job description of somebody, it is so hard to find the right fit of talent for that because there's just so many other undefinable qualities of humans and of skills and experiences yeah, that just right. don't fit that 15 line statement. And it's just such a random swing to be able to create that good connection. So you've given me some food for thought or pondering about how, how I can you know, you know, provide some more value in our business. But mate, let's talk about what with you, with me was like in the early days. Um, what was the team like? How big were you? What kind of things were you doing? 
So in 2017, when I joined the business, there was pretty much four full-time staff, all veterans, and then rapidly we probably grew to about eight. You know, um, the vision was basically the same, except we were focused squarely on, on military veterans. And we really wanted to solve the veteran experience. And a lot of that came from Tom's personal experience through transition and a lot of his personal connections struggling through transition to the point of um, maybe some suicides, maybe some negative outcomes. And that was the passion behind him driving a solution. Um, but we knew the solution had to be more than just trying to get every person that came to our door a job, which has been a bit of a frustration in our business because when you're trying to solve a 20, 30-year vision, it's hard to stay focused on that and not try and help every single problem that's occurring with the people that you're working with. So um, we, we sort of set our sights on trying to remove the resume and get this skills-based model up off the ground, even back then. And it was just iterative of how we would approach that. And so in the early years, it was just a recruitment company. And yeah. we were trying to validate whether we could test people and whether we people could actually do these skills and whether corporate would accept them. And so we were just kind of going through that process. And then as it started to prove itself, we started to seek investment and that allowed us to start to scale. And then we started to build the technology that was underlying all of this. And that started to scale. And we kind of went on this big growth trajectory through 2020, 2021, where we did some global expansion. And the business changed rapidly, rapidly. And the markets are different, Pete. In Australia, I still talk to a lot of customers that, that see us as a veteran recruiter. Yeah. But in Canada and in the UK, we were never that. And so they see us as this talent solution provider at a greater at a greater level. Have you found the the narrative or the branding around that in Australia has you know constrained what you're doing and how you're looking at it? Because that's initially that was the emphasis, but like this is just that was the MVP almost of like, hey, we've got a model here that we can take these people, run them through a program, and have a great product at the outcome. How are you finding that um, from a branding perspective in Australia to change that narrative a little bit? Yeah, the brand's interesting. It's the brand's still strong in attracting people into the free program to access training and testing and think differently about their careers, even though we might not be putting all of them into work or even have enough jobs for all of them because that scaled way faster than the demand did. Um, working with different corporates and customers and government, um, there are some customers where they're like, we just want to hire a veteran off you and give you a placement fee like a recruitment provider. And we've had to say, we don't do that. I know that doesn't make sense to you, but that's not our business. There are others that do that. Go and use them. But our business does this. And so we've had to say no to work and to jobs because it doesn't fit with where we're going with the vision. And that's a bit funny when you think about it, but that's also how business works. You've got to, you've got to stay focused on your niche, your unique selling proposition. I've got to ask, man, sticking with the brand bit for a little bit, who did the branding? I always find it a very intriguing logo. Like I love it, but you know, the corkscrew kind of, it's one, it's almost oh, like an optical are... illusion for me, man. I keep looking yeah. at it, but it's a brilliant little, uh, it's a brilliant little piece of branding. Um, who, Where did that come from? So the name itself has clearly been there from the beginning. And that came from the urban combat phrase with me, with you. And we flipped that because we wanted to talk about the fact that we were helping people on their next dangerous journey Yep. into corporate that was the story behind the name and that's evolved in its branding over the years the most current brand that you've seen which we've had for about maybe two years if i think correctly um we had a bit of support from a from a branding agency because we wanted some outside eyes and and that were non-military that would think about how this would 
feel to other prospects globally. Um, and then our own internal marketing team at the time did a lot of great work on how this would feel. And so this was a more modern um, a more modern logo and a, and a suite of slogans that was about diversity, not about mm. the military. And our early brand was very about the military. This brand is very about something different, something edgy. Um, how do we think differently about the future and people? And that's the thinking behind, the feeling behind the brands and the logos. So if you're on YouTube watching this um, and have a look above Tom's head, but we've got the corkscrew there. Uh, if you're not on YouTube and you're listening to this on a pod, uh, then f- have a look up the with you with me brand. It's a very clever it's it's a very clever way of articulating what they're doing both you know from a visual but a dynamic perspective of, and again, just the narrative of how you've that with you with me statement at the start was so fit for purpose about doing that initial connection that how it's morphed and evolved into just including more and more diversity groups is just um no credit to you and the team and it's just it was a moment of genius, I believe to nail it in the first place. So whereas for me, I'm constantly looking, I'm constantly like, is trust the process, the right brand is trust the process. Yeah. It's great for a $10 million company, but is it going to be okay for a $50 million company, a hundred million dollar company? So I'm sort of constantly going through these machinations myself, but you guys nailed it. You guys nailed it. Hey, um, I just want to go back. So 2017 ish, you joined the company. Was that right? Ish. Yeah. 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 Um, April. So- Day after Anzac day, 2017. Day after Anzac. So you guys um, were awarded the Deloitte fastest growing company in in Australia, and you know it's a thirteen thousand odd percent in growth. What was that time like, riding the bucking bull, you know, of, mm. of business growth like that? Yeah. So they um, those awards are measured on um, revenue growth in certain categories. And so, you know, clearly when you're starting a business from scratch, you're at no revenue. And then if you if you have a good year, that percentage is quite great. And then that continued for us for a number of years as we scaled the business. What was it like riding that ball? Like um, it, was, it was bloody hard work. Yeah. Um, it was exciting. You're really in the startup vibe. Like nothing is an organized process. Everything is unique and you're pulling people together to try and solve problems. And then at the same time, try and figure out how you could make that repeatable. You've got big customers saying, we want this thing and us saying, yeah, we can do that thing. And then everyone going away, trying to figure out how we're going to do that thing because it aligned with the vision. And that's like, if you've worked in startups, that's what it's like. And you attract people that want that um, as a, as a, as a career, as a lifestyle choice. Um, So that was exciting. And then of course you, you ride the roller coaster. So you, you take on funding, um, you go after big growth milestones like Canada or the UK or the US and and then you fail. You know, like we, we basically failed in the US in 2018 and we had to come back. Um, and we learned a lot from that about how our global expansion would work. And, and, and you fail because you hire a bunch of people and actually maybe we didn't get that right. We, we've lost a couple of quarters of growth and performance. Let's reset that. Um, and, and then of course, as, as you may know, the, the markets changed and we and we took a couple of big a big punches as a tech company where a lot of our investors were sort of saying, yeah, you've been on this growth, rapid growth trajectory where all we cared about was top line business growth, but actually now we really care about profitability. We need you to get to profitability so that this business can survive this economic downturn. Mm-hmm. And that's been the last 18 months of how do we rebuild, repurpose the business so it could be profitable and sustainable in a different economic environment. 
man. It's we were talking about it pre-show a little bit, but revenue solves a lot of problems, um, but profitability solves a lot more of them. And it's funny, you know, like uh, I, I often feel like these awards and that, like obviously they're great accolades, but sometimes it's maybe it's a bit of imposter syndrome or uh, maybe a bit of a fraudulent veneer. But we we got onto the top one hundred list, and I'm like, well, how did that even happen? And like, hmm. I almost feel like, and one of the words that I've written down on my page here is scalability. So for you guys to be able to achieve growth like that, how did you really infuse scalability into that model? Because it it has to come through leverage. You cannot deliver one product here, one product there, one product there. You have to get one to 100 ratios or one to 1000 ratios to be able to deliver Mm. this kind of growth. How did you move from, you know, a one to one to a one to many scalable type program? Um, one of the key factors was um, the founder, Tom, and one of his many skills was um, opening doors and creating unique solutions and opportunities that our business would fit really well to. And that was true at a national level, going to a new country like the UK. Um, and and I've never seen in my life anybody else that's been able to meet the people you need to meet, get in the right room and craft an initial solution that gets us working on something. And Mm. it was that work that drove the inertia of the business through those rapid stages because you had revenue coming in and you had real customer demand to work on. And that was always linked back to getting people into work. And a lot of our employees are here because they wanted to get people into work. They were really purpose-led. And so the second part of it was, well, how do you, how do you keep that front and center? And that's been the hardest thing to do as we've scaled. Like, how do you see the impact through all the day-to-day business as usual inside the business? And we haven't always got that right. And we're still working on getting that right. Um, But that drives motivation from the team. And so um, Tom was a big driver for that. Um, And now it's about scalability in your words, which is repeatability. So now how do you work with the right customers who are at the right point in their journey to obtain our you know, onboard our model, um, and then how do you stay with them? Our business is about less logos, but doing a lot of work with those businesses because they're transforming how they think about talent. We're not trying to work with everyone yet. And how was your investment into making this a tech platform based, a real driver of this change? So the technology is interesting in that it allows you to scale because a lot of the things we do internally are driven on the platform. And then clearly our customers are on that platform as well, as well as all the users. So investing in the development of the product and having a vision for that product that's linked to the vision for the business, i.e. we want to build an experience that drives the thinking and behavior around skills-based hiring, aptitude testing, matching of people to jobs was critical to the vision of the business and, and the success that we've had today. Um, and then trying to embed that in our customers is, is the challenge we're going through now. And that's how we grow as a business is more adoption of that product. So we, we invested heavily um, way before, well ahead of the adoption of the market. We were building stuff that we knew they would need and they weren't ready to adopt yet. Sometimes that was great. Sometimes it held us back. Man, I'm getting excited here thinking about how sometimes laborious my own business feels, you know, and, you know, we, we, so Maddie and I, we've always got these, you know, drivers to take it to the next tech-based solution because we, ne- we understand that's what the leverage is, but really understanding that, that value matrix between how can you get your customers onto that platform? How do you get your candidates onto that platform and really provide a space 
where they can coexist with great value to each other is really um, an interesting niche. And it's really got, it's got my head thinking about it, you know, what I can do in my business. Um, mate, just going back to your journey through with you with me, you started off as, uh, what role did you start off with? But you ended up as head of customer success, moved into yeah. uh, chief of ops or head of ops. And, and now you're the boss. Take us through that journey over a couple of years. Structures are kind of funny in startups. You're, you're always thinking that you, you need to build um, the right structure now and then that will scale over time and you can make it make sense, but you never make it make sense. So it's like every year you're rebuilding your structure and you're changing your job titles and you're trying to figure out what makes sense, um, sometimes for how you hire people and sometimes to make sense for the customer. So I joined as an account manager and I was pretty much given the first contract the business had ever won from Tom and said, there you go, you need to put as many veterans as you can into all these jobs, figure it out. Um, and it's, uh, and you know, that's the business was, was spreadsheets and, and iPhone video marketing and, you know, it was nothing, it was, it was nothing, but we had a great contract and that got us off the ground. And so then I evolved into, well, someone's got to start to think about how the business operations come together. Tom's going to sell the vision, drive the product and try and find the customers. And that was always, that was always our relationship. Tom would open an opportunity and then I would work on delivering it bringing people in, scaling the process around it. So I kind of went on this path of, I think I had a GM job title um, and then I worked on the customer side in delivery. So I'd always sit in the meetings, I'd understand the solution we're going to deliver and I'd bring the team together to work on that delivery. And then we tried to scale that function. So that led me towards, can you be the chief you know, operations officer? Um, and, and then of course, um, as we were starting to plan the founder CEO succession, based on availability of talent, state of our business and where we were at the time, um, I was deemed suitable, you know, and excited to take over from Tom and and take us on this next evolution of where the company's going. Man, this is, and this is why we say every business needs a Tom Lada because now as the founder of my business, I am significantly limited in some of my skill sets. You know, I'm great at pulling the ideas together. I'm great at meeting people but I have a fundamental blockage or my head starts to you know, start feel like it's collapsing on itself when I have to get into the fine details of running, running a business. And I, I'm just very lucky that I've got um, you know, a business partner and co-founder that's been able to share the weight. But um, people like you and with the skills and the determination and the talent are really what, you know, when a founder can let go and and find someone that believes in their vision and and comes on the journey with them. It just it's releasing the business away from the founder into becoming its own true identity and its own true potential. Um, I just want to come back to your, a couple of words that you have used in the business in the past. I'm not sure if they're really on your current branding, but be transparent, be curious, and be fierce. Where did these come from, and why do these statements? Why are these statements so important? So we knew at a point in time. I feel like it was about 2018. I can't remember the business needed values and, and, mm. you know, we were, we were learning, learning about business as we were building a business. Um, and so we said, well, you know, like anyone, we want values that people will really get behind, not values that kind of sit on the wall and don't really mean anything. And, um, and so we thought at the time about, well, what values are important to our vision? Um, and then we worked with the employees at the time about what that could look like. And so be transparent actually came from, the idea that we were we as a business were unhappy with the fact that the market wasn't being transparent around talent. We were hiding behind degrees and resumes 
And, and people weren't talking about this big social problem. So we wanted to bring transparency to that problem. Um, and then over time, that kind of evolves into some of the corporate culture and how, how you act as well. Be Fierce was about, well, it's going to be hard to continue to stay focused on a 50-year vision and we're going to get a lot of no's and people are not going to want to adopt this model and they're going to tell us that this is not going to work and people told us you can't build your own content. People told you aptitude testing isn't going to work. People said people aren't going to do training for free. you got to pay them. And so you had to be fierce to, to stay the cause. Yeah. Um, and be curious was, well, this is new ground. So don't go in thinking that you know what you're doing. Go in with openness to experience and asking lots of questions. And we apply that to our customers. We apply it to our innovation as best we can. And that's where they started. And people will probably tell you a different story now. And, you know, an employee that's only been in the business for a year, they probably mean something slightly different, but they're the values of the business. There's a fourth one, actually, which was be the customer. And right mm-hmm. now we're going through a, a values realignment. Where we're asking the employees, what do they mean to you now? How do we how do we continue to drive these forward? And that's pretty interesting. And it's funny when I first got out of the army, and our, our first little business was called Secure Windows. And I went that's to right. some yeah, I went to a couple of you know entrepreneur education events. There was a mob called the Entourage that I got a lot of value out of, and did some of their programs. And they were talking about vision and mission and values, and we came up with it. But to be honest, it it felt like a load of rubbish to be honest. Mm. Um, and we really didn't live and breathe our values are more tokenistic statements that we thought, oh, well, yeah, you need a vision. What is it? You know, you need some values. What are they? But I'm full circle on this, man. I am I am absolutely adamant that when you're a vision and mission and values-based business, it drives everything that we do. Now, I do, we hire probably 15 people a week in our business, and I do an onboarding session with every new recruit. Uh, so like in, in a group environment, every new recruit, every Monday at 12 o'clock, and the very first thing I say to them are, this is the vision and mission and values of our business. Um, if you don't, if if you're not aligned with this stuff, then you know we're not right for each other. And but from an accountability perspective, this comes from the top down. Like me and Matt as the co-founders, we are as equally accountable to those as anyone else in the business. And just a couple of hours, you know, being brilliant at the basics. This was the first bit of advice that I ever got. Um, from my CEO at 3RAR, when he said to me, you don't need to do fancy things to be successful here. Just be brilliant at the basics. Mm. Um, And one of the other ones that I really love, so two of the other ones, we've got five, but we practice what we preach is so important for us, you know, in terms of, um, for me, what I say is, you know, one of the leadership team, I've got to put that into effect. And because we've got a global team, you know, we got got full-time team members in US, UK, Philippines, Australia, um, every voice in our vis- business matters. And th- like, that's one of our values. And and at every meeting I do, one of my little tricks is I go around the room and I'm like, does anyone have something to say? And sometimes, you know, my PA or an admin assistant or something like that will just pop up with something. And, it'll, and it's just like, my gosh, where, why aren't we all thinking about that? Mm. So f- for us, a vision, mission, values-based business, it's not just a load of you know fancy jargon if you truly believe it and it's in the fiber of who you are and what you do it makes life so much easier and just on that note um one of the things that i encourage my team to do in terms of like delegation if you need to make a decision in our business and you don't have any guidance 
we'll go and read our vision and mission and values first. And if you make that decision after you've read that and you were, and what you're about to do aligns with that, then crack on and do it. Mm. And if, and if we don't get, if you make a mistake, then we'll own that because maybe we need to tweak something, but, and I can't stress Man, I what this is. I couldn't agree more with the, the stuff you're talking about. Brilliant at the basics is still something that rolls off my tongue every other yeah. week in the business. Um, uh, and same as you, you know, I got that advice early on in the military. Um, and I, I am a big believer that leadership shapes culture. And, yeah. and as a CEO, one of the early lessons, and, you know, I've been a CEO for 200 days, right? And one of the early lessons for me is nobody's going to care about the vision as much as you. It is your job to reiterate that and make people or inspire people to care about that vision. And that never ends. And so mm. you're, you're constantly working the leadership to shape the culture that you want. And then the culture will evolve over time. And our business has been go has gone on a journey of being great at that and then being not so great at that. And, and that's kind of how businesses grow as well. But now like my vision as a, as a CEO here is to, to build a business that people really want to work in. Um, yeah. and and get us to a point where we can scale again based on the economic climate and keep having purpose and impact. And that comes from the culture. I love it. And what's interesting is you also mentioned that these things can change and things can evolve. You know, we are recrafting our new uh, vision statement because the world's changing and we're changing in it. And our new vision is going to be along the lines of this is sort of the 90% sort of solution is that, Business is fundamentally a human experience that is leveraged by digitization. And then what we really want to do is we want to make sure that business stays, well, in our business model, stays a, a relationship-based, connection-based, value-based event between people. But we want to really use technology and the digital world to empower and leverage that. So we're just crafting. It's, it's, a, it's a really challenging thing to grab that intent and then craft it into a few beautiful words that roll off the tongue. And that's something that uh, you know, we're fine-tuning as we speak. But so, mate, tell us about um what's next for you've got the reins now with with you with me. Um, global, local, what's next for you? What's next for the business? So the business right now, you know, part of one of the challenges with the vision that we found was there was a big gap between the big vision and what people do every week. And so our strategy was too complex. So we we spent time to break that down to it's on a couple of pages. The one year plan is about really focus our efforts on the solutions that we know work for the customers that are ready to receive it and scale those customers to get us to a repeatable, scalable in your words business um, that that makes sense at a business model level now that the economy is not letting us just rapidly grow with capital injection. And that's the short term view. And then you know the three year plan is once we've nailed that, how do we expand? strategically into the markets that make sense. We're slowly opening up the US. Europe is very interesting in terms of what they're doing with diverse talent and leading the way, and we've got value to add there. So it will be about continued measured global expansion to have more and more impact. Um, and when you know we're not turning our back on Australia, we'll continue to scale and grow here um, as we have. For me personally, um, I'm, I'm on the bus. You know, I want to I want to see this business be successful and continue to grow and have impact, um, and and get back to being a place that you know people um, really want to work. They really care about what we're doing here and create a bit of an interesting an interesting culture. Yeah, mate. Well, it's um, 
it's definitely a journey and, and business is fun. And I think what I love about it is just, I'm, it's a constant way for me to continue to challenge and push my horizons, both in my own, you know, acumen, my own creativity, my own leadership skills, and, and the way that we solve problem after problem. Uh, mm. This week, I'm speaking at the uh, ESG procurement conference, really talking about veteran-owned businesses and veteran community businesses as a core part of diversity and supply chain. And I think, you know, with what you and Tom and Luke have developed, you know, with, with you, with me, is a classic example of veterans still serving in their next career. Like in our old career, yep, we put on our uniform and, you know, we did the jobs that, you know, the government required us to do. But that same sense of service and passion to do the right thing for people in the right way, it's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about veteran entrepreneurship and enterprise because the same people, the same character, the same commitment that was in uniform is now in business. Yeah. So, yeah. And and look, with you, with me, you guys are just classic examples of the living model of that. So, so I really love it. Um, mate, I'm going to wrap it up there. To learn more about with you, with me, uh, it's quick. Jump on Google. It, it'll all be in the show notes. Jump onto YouTube below and throw some comments in. If you want to connect with Tom, you know, we'll, we'll have all of the easy ways to go there. Mate, for me, uh, like all of us, for some reason, I just feel that like your journey and this adventure has just begun. You know, you've, you've you've all achieved so much already, and um, let's just keep watching where you go to, mate. Last word from you. Uh, I appreciate the time. I, I love having watched your businesses grow as well, and and you learning on the journey because it is a journey. Um, uh, I'll just finish by saying that I, I really love what with you with me does and where we're heading. Um, and I hope my team are feeling that and the people we work with are feeling that. And there's plenty of exciting things to come from our business in the near future. So thanks for your time, mate. It's a great podcast. Well, mate, um, I've got to say every business needs a Tom Ladder. Um, you can't have the real one because with you, with me, he's got him already. But, you know, when you find someone like with this talent, with this motivation, with this intelligence and commitment, you got to grab them, you know, particularly if you're a founder, nurture them through, make them feel a part of it, and then you know, release yourself to doing what, what's next in your life. Um, my name's Pete Liston. This is the Military Mindset for Business show. Out.